This is episode number 603 with Christina Stathopoulos, analytical lead for Waze and adjunct professor at IE Business School. Today's episode is brought to you by Pachyderm, the leader in data versioning and MLOps pipelines. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined in person by Christina Stathopoulos, a remarkably eloquent communicator of technical and philosophical content alike. Christina has worked at Google for nearly five years in several data-centric roles. For the past year, she's worked as an analytical lead for Waze, the popular crowdsourced navigation app owned by Google. She's also an adjunct professor at IE Business School in Madrid, where she teaches courses on business analytics, machine learning, data visualization, and data ethics. Previously, she worked as a data engineer at media analytics giant Nielsen. She holds a master's in business analytics and big data from IE Business School and a bachelor's in science, tech, and society from North Carolina State. Today's episode will appeal to a broad audience of technical and non-technical listeners alike. In this episode, Christina details geospatial data and open source packages for working with it, her tips for getting a foothold in a data career if you come from an unconventional background, guidance to help women and other underrepresented groups to thrive in tech, the hard and soft skills most essential to success in a data role today, and her book a week challenge with her top data-centric book recommendations for us. All right, you ready for this fabulous episode? Let's go. Christina, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've been talking about getting you on the show for years, and now you're finally here in person in New York. Thank you for making the trip. Where did you travel to my apartment in New York from? So, so far, I'm just north of you, Upper West Side, so travel down. I'm very, very excited to be here. Like you said, it's been a long time coming, so I'm yeah. excited to be here today. Pandemic made things complicated for us. It did. It did. But we made it happen we in person. We were committed to the in-person episode. And yeah. so we had to both be in New York at the same time. And now it's worked out. I am so excited. And we've got a great episode planned. So many amazing questions. Even just prior to filming, Christina and I haven't been able to stop talking because she has so many interesting things going on. So let's dig into it. Your route into data has been somewhat unconventional. So you've spoken before of making it against what you call all the odds, building this career in another country and in a second language. Since your experience as an expat in Spain could be inspiring to other aspiring immigrants all over the world, uh, could you provide us with a cheat sheet uh, that could you know, fill in how other people can have this level of success that you have? Yeah, and, and to give a little bit of background, um, I, I was born and raised in North Carolina. First of all, I'm from the US. I then went and lived abroad in Madrid, Spain, right after finishing college, my bachelor's. Um, and I completely developed an analytics career abroad. So like you said, um, develop th these advice for other immigrants, aspiring data scientists, especially those 
against whatever odds there may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so developing this career in a new country, um, in a different language, in a second language that I had to learn from scratch. I went there without any any Spanish speaking really? abilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you pick Spain? You were like, it seems nice. It's, like the weather <laughs> seems right for me. It's not a bad choice. I mean, <laughs> in in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it was a bad choice. There was a lot of um, a lot of thought that went into the decision, a lot of different factors. But um, originally I considered going to Asia, um, but then thought about the language, knowing Korean, Japanese, how much is it going to take me later in life? I realized that Spain was a good choice. Learning Spanish and being fluent in Spanish would always be a benefit for me. So I moved abroad um, partly to pick up the language. I had only planned on being there a year, by the way. Mm. A year turned into two, which turned into 10. (laughs) things just happen um so there's i mean there's a lot of lessons to be learned in this i think it was an interesting it's an interesting um journey path especially like you said for immigrants so a couple things that i learned that others can put into practice one thing is definitely to find the the positive in every situation so especially when you're going up against odds Um, and in this case, like not knowing the language, not knowing a lot of people being young, um, and, and not having experience in the field. So finding the positive in every situation, no matter how negative. So turning the tables and thinking, what can this teach me? How can I learn and how can I grow Mm -hmm. and not having it pull you down? Mm -hmm. So especially towards the beginning, when I first got started there, there was a lot of negativity in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and I needed to get past that. Uh, you need Negativity to change about just like like how can I make it here? I don't know. I don't know anybody. I don't know how to speak the language. Yeah. How am I possibly going to make it work? It was there's a lot of struggles and just like in life in general, getting set up a new life somewhere. Uh, you mean, have a lot of struggles. I can understand that. I mean, I've yeah. only immigrated to places where speaking English. I've moved to England, Singapore, oh. and uh, the U.S. Now I'm originally Canadian, and even though in all of those places, English was a primary language, it's it's still absolutely a struggle. Like not having yeah. a network in place can still, you know, still yeah, lead to that negativity. I completely understand. So in your case, you know, it must be exponentially more difficult. And culturally too, which you right. probably experienced going to the UK, it's very different going to Singapore. You need to, you need to adapt to the culture and you need to learn. So there's this, very steep hill at the beginning and you need to just make sure that that doesn't get you down like i said find the positive learn from it and grow from that so i think that's definitely one thing that people need to get into that mindset and then another thing that i recommend is to um to set up a plan so think of your timeline where do you want to be five ten years down the line and consider how you're going to get there and there's, there's this quote, I don't know exactly how it goes, but it says that your, your future is defined by your daily habits. Small daily habits create your future and create your success. Mm-hmm. So taking into, into, into account where you want to be five, 10 years from now, consider what changes can you make today, tomorrow? What habits, healthy habits can you pick up to get you on the right track? So I think that's another thing that can definitely help, um, especially for those just getting started in data science or 
feeling a bit out of their element, immigrating like I did. Um, so that would be the second thing. And then one other thing that I would add is just to learn how to thrive outside of your comfort zone. So especially for immigrants or someone in a new environment in general, maybe you're just moving to a new city, but you are going to be pushed out of your comfort zone, learn how to thrive in that setting. And this can be very valuable, I think, for anyone just getting started in data science or making a transition within data science. Um, you're going to have situations. You're not always going to feel like you know what's going on or you're the expert in the room. You don't have to always be. Um, but learn to thrive in these situations, learn to go in with confidence, learn to, to, learn to learn from every situation. Nice. Those are great practical tips and concisely said. So to summarize them back to you is to get past the inevitable negativity of the immigration struggle. It's just going to happen. It's going to feel that way. So get over it. Um, the second thing was make a five to 10 year plan and then adjust your daily habits to nudge you slowly in the direction of those aims. I love that. That is perfect and in line with a lot of what we've talked about on Five Minute Friday episodes on the show. And then finally, learn how to thrive outside your comfort zone. I love that. Is there anything, Christina, that you would have done differently if you could go back uh, and do it all again? It's a really good question. And the answer for me is that no, there's nothing that I would go back and change. I'm not a big person of regret, again, trying to avoid the negative. Um, and I think that everything that happens literally does happen for a reason. I'm afraid that if I went back and changed something, I might not be where I am today. Right. So all of the positive, all of the negative that happened to me before, the struggles, the success, um, it got me to where I am today. So there's, in my case, no reason to go back and change it. God, that's nice. <laughs> I live with so much regret. Everything's a regret. So speaking of success and where you are today, you are currently analytics lead at Waze, a crowdsourced navigation app by Google. This is an app that is familiar, familiar to me. I don't own a car. I almost never drive a car, but I am super familiar with Waze anyway, because when I take an Uber or a Lyft around New York or anywhere else in the world, they are often using Waze. So they'll frequently actually have two phones. They'll have one phone that is the app they're using, so Uber or Lyft, um, and then they'll have a separate phone that is just for running Waze. I guess the for people in the know, like drivers, professional drivers, they know that Waze is the best app for finding the quickest way from point A to point B. So very popular for those listeners who haven't heard of it. Uh, probably most of you listeners drive, and so maybe you already use it. Um, and so. Um, you've transitioned into several roles during your nearly five years at Google, now uh, currently into this analytics lead role at Waze. And so Waze is, it used to be a separate company, but then it was acquired by Google and now, so it's Waze, it's a part of Google. And so what challenges have you faced as you transition between all of these different roles at Google? Yep, and first of all, great intro to Waze. I don't think I could have <laughs> done it better myself. Um, so yeah, like you explained, I've been with Google for about five years now, um, and I've made transitions during these years. To give a bit of context, context, I started at Google Spain while I was living in Spain. So out of the Madrid, Spain office, I started in an analytical consultant role, uh, mainly working when we think, consider data, I was working with Google ads and Google search data 
and working with our top advertisers to help them with their strategy to use data to drive their strategy depending on changing search trends. Um, so I started off in this role and there were definitely a lot of the, the typical challenges um, as I was making these career moves within Spain. Um, the typical challenges, I mean, like understanding how I can grow in my role, what is next. And as I was exploring this uh, about three and a half years into this position, into a couple smaller changes within the within the org in Spain, but I may, decided to make the big change to come to Waze out of New York City, where mm-hmm. I'm currently based, mm-hmm. um, working as an analytical lead. And it was a big transition, not in this, not just in the sense of the move. I had to now move from Spain, where I had been for about 10 years, mm-hmm. come back closer to home in the US. So besides this typical big change that I needed to, to make, um, I, I need to make this physical move. Mm-hmm. I also had the having to adapt to a completely new company and a completely new way of thinking with data. So this is where I kind of want to to go into the go into detail. But the transition of broadening my data science scope and now going into geospatial. This was a huge transition for me and also a huge challenge that I needed to confront. And I needed to learn something completely new. I had mm-hmm. very, very little experience with geospatial data prior to working in ways. We dabbled a little bit with it during my master's. I studied a master's back in, in 2015 in business analytics and big data. Um, but besides that, I had never worked with geospatial data. So by joining Waze, I now had to learn how to analyze and how to understand geospatial data in the sense of how are people moving? How is it changing? What are the macro trends looking, looking like when superimposed over a map, for example? Um, so what did this mean for, for me in the analytics uh, world? I had to learn a lot of, of new things. So to give a, a really simple example, when I first came um, into this new role and working with new teams, one typical use case you might have is you might want to understand how much has a user driven from point A to point B? And what distance have they covered during the day? What is the average that people are driving during a week? So you would think, okay, you just measure the distance from point A to point B, right? right? Um, it's not that simple, of mm. course. You have to take into account the curvature of the Earth. Uh, of course. So, so you don't think the world is flat? No, I do not. Mm, okay, very good. <laughs> not, not, in, not in the flat Earth uh, group. There's, are there, how many flat Earthers are there at a geospatial company? <laughs> I haven't met one yet, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to... Um, not going to pry. Not, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This episode of Super Data Science is brought to you by Pachyderm. Pachyderm enables data engineering teams to automate complex pipelines with sophisticated data transformations across any type of data. Their unique approach provides parallelized processing of multi-stage language agnostic pipelines with data versioning and data lineage tracking. Pachyderm delivers the ultimate CI-CD engine for data. Learn more at pachyderm.com. That's P-A-C-H-Y-D-E-R-M.com. Like the elephant. All right, now back to our show. So yeah, this is a really simple use case. You have to take into account the curvature of the Earth. It's actually a little bit longer than just a straight line between point A and point B. Right, 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 right. Unless they're driving really far, and then it's like, and then the curve really matters. Yeah, yeah, the longer you go, the more that curve might actually matter. Right. 
Um, so this was a, a use case that I had to wrap my, my head around. How do we do all of this? So thankfully, there's already been a lot of work done in the geospatial realm. Um, there is something called S2, S2 Geometry. This was created by Google. It's this library um, of geospatial. It really, it allows us to, um, to picture data in a 3D, on a 3D sphere. So it's, in it's third, open sourced, right? It's open source, yeah. yeah. So this is completely public. It's open source. Um, and it allows you to have data on a three-dimensional sphere versus a two-dimensional projection like on a map. So it is much more accurate, of course. It's much more in tune to how the Earth is shaped. Mm -hmm. um, if you go into it a little bit more in detail as well, it's, it's much more accurate, but it's not perfect because the Earth is also not a perfect sphere. Mm. It might even be more like elliptical. Mm. Yeah, but there's that, that's a, a conversation for another day. <laughs> no, so you're an day. elliptical Earth. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's a conversation for another day, but it's not like the, it's not perfect, but it's, it's getting there. This, this sphere way of looking at the Earth and, and data pictured mm -hmm. this way. Um, so we use this S2 library to be able to calculate, make these analyses and calculations as people are moving throughout over, over the earth. And so with this, the fact that it's able to um, picture the earth in, in 3D, it also allows us to much better, it, it has functions that allow you to compare different geographic objects and the relationship between them. So to go into a little bit more of a, a more complicated case rather than just driving point A to point B, imagine, for example, that we want to understand um, all of the Walmarts across the U.S. and we want to locate all of the Walmarts that are within three miles of a school. Mm -hmm. So you want a list of these. Okay. If you didn't have a way to optimize this query, then you would literally have to compare every Walmart across the U.S. Right. with every school right. and make matches. It's like a traveling salesman problem, kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It would be along those lines. Yeah. So it's not optimal, and it could be a crazy, like, performance-wise, if you do it that way, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. we, well, it will work, but it will take a lot more processing right. and time. Um, and so you can use these, these S, S2 libraries to optimize the query, and it will allow you to use what is called S2 cells. So S2 cells break the earth into different polygons, geometric shapes, um, and classifies everything within these geometric areas. And you can use the S2 cells, the S2 functions, to then optimize a query that will match the Walmart locations with schools, but using the ones that the system already knows are within a reasonable geographic distance. You're oh, not comparing cool. all of them, but you're narrowing down the, the matches that you're going to test for. So cool. all of this was completely new to me a little over a year ago, and I was having to learn it from, from scratch. It was incredibly interesting, actually, and opened my mind, broadened my mind to just a new realm of analytics. And then as well, for, for listeners to know, you can access a lot of this um, straight through BigQuery in, in the Google Cloud platform. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, you can look up. If you Love search BigQuery. for geography functions, hmm. you'll be able to find a good help page that explains them. And you'll see within the functions, you'll see reference to S2. And it's using this system. So it's something that you can play with and do on your own. And then also just to add, and I'm not as familiar with this, but there's another system. It's called H3 by Uber. 
Um, it's the H3 hexagonal spatial index. Uber did something similar, created their own system, but with a different approach. As you can imagine, Uber has a lot of use cases similar to this. Right. So they created their own system at the time. So you'll hear a lot about the usage of, of S2 and H3. Got it. Cool. Well, I didn't know any of that before. So that's all super interesting. And it's great to know that I could be accessing it right away if I need it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Um, what does it mean to be an analytics lead? What does that title mean? Yeah, it's a pretty, I get that question a lot. Like, <laughs> what do you do? The typical, the typical question. So what do I do? Um, in my case, I'm helping lead analytics studies and strategy. Again, at Waze, working with, on the monetization side of the app, so working with advertisers and helping right. them understand, in this case, how different, how changes in mobility, how that might affect um, different clients' businesses and also their, their ad spend or how they're placing the ads, in our case, across the map. I did something very similar when I was working at Google. I, I mentioned that before yeah, about yeah, how yeah, I was yeah. working with yeah. Google search and Google ads, so working yeah. with advertisers. So I, I maintain that same type of uh, job, but now in the geospatial realm. That's cool. It makes, so, it makes a lot of sense. I didn't, I didn't fully understand the relationship there. I thought it might be, I thought you might be super well suited to ways and working with geospatial data because you're great at data analytics, data science, you're a good critical thinker, but I, indeed you also get to take advantage of the kinds of the advertising know-how that you had from before. And exactly. Client management, that kind of stuff. Yeah, a lot of the client management as well. And then being able to translate insights from data or trends in data actual business use cases right. and or how it affects our strategy and their strategy. Right, right, right. And to, to be able to concisely summarize things in a non-technical way for a non-technical audience to be able to say, because they're probably not often interested in S2 geometry. No. <laughs> I rarely, what's crazy is I had to learn all about all of this, but yeah. I rarely have to speak about it. This is one right. of the first times I've ever really spoken about it. Oh, nice. Well, publicly. Uh, it seems like you know it very well and I, yeah. Very delighted that you decided to talk about it on air with us. Um, so something else related to uh, what you've been doing at Google. So um, I think it's no secret that women in tech can have it harder uh, than men, um, as I guess can any kind of underrepresented groups. Yes. So at Google, you facilitated an initiative for empowering women and other underrepresented groups to speak openly about their accomplishments in the workplace and beyond thereby breaking modesty norms and glass ceilings. Was it hard for you to do this? Like, so if these kinds of modesty norms are in place and these glass ceilings are in place, I can imagine that it then makes it hard to kind of come up with an initiative like this in the first place. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't come up with the initiative by any means. Oh. Um, the initiative is called I Am Remarkable, and it's quite well known nowadays. It's spread all over the globe. It did start out of Google. It actually started as an internal initiative, and then it became this external public uh, workshop called I Am Remarkable. It's not just for women, as you, as you nicely mentioned it, underrepresented groups. It's trying to help underrepresented groups because underrepresented groups, minorities, in any, in any situation where you are the odd one out, it happens to all of us at some point in our lives. Um, when you're in these situations, you tend to you tend to lose confidence. You don't feel like you're getting a voice at the table. Um, there's these just these different things that come into play when you are a minority, and it's about breaking through that. And it becomes even more important, I guess, when we're talking about the data and tech 
uh, world and when we're considering gender, it's no surprise, as you mentioned, that women are underrepresented in tech. So this happens to us a lot where we are a minority in a group. It happens to me all the time. In my, in my analytics teams, I'm typically the only or one of very few women. When I speak at conferences or I'm involved in networking or panels, there's very few women involved. And they, it's not the most welcoming situation, even though I interact with um, amazing male colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, but it does make you feel like you are the odd one out, that you need to try even harder. And so this initiative that I was, that I was facilitating um, as a, and a part of, it was to help underrepresented groups and minorities learn to get their voice out there, um, learn to be more vocal, learn how to sell your accomplishments. That's one thing that when you are a minority, you hold back um, and you you don't you just don't sell yourself as much. And I mean that in a positive sense of the word, mm -hmm. because it's not bragging if it's based on facts. We're talking about things that you have achieved um, and the workshop helps to just help you get the confidence and, and get a voice out there, because ultimately that's what you need to do to grow in your career. You're going to have to prove that you're making an impact and show your accomplishments. So as, as women, one thing that we that we've found often, there's a lot of studies around this, but especially women in a tech setting, you'll find that when we have to sell an accomplishment, we will oftentimes say we like a team effort. Right. And when really maybe you need to be saying I, what right. did I do? It's right. not always the team. Right. What did you accomplish? So you'll find women or just minorities will use the word we when they should be using I. Mm. And then another thing that's kind of related to this as well, but um, and there's a lot of studies around this too, that when we go to apply for jobs, you'll find that women or minorities will be harder, will be harder on ourselves. And we want to, uh, we want to have, um, have accomplished 100% or 95% right. of what is being asked right. when our male counterparts are okay applying when they've only hit 50% of the requirements. Right. So we're putting too much pressure on ourselves when we don't need to be. Right. Um, so, and going back to your question, so you had talked about like, how did I overcome this? I of course have these issues too. Definitely have the imposter syndrome like everyone. I think it gets magnified or it, it's even worse for minorities the imposter syndrome. So there's lots of, you know, there's lots of advice out there on how to get over it, but for sure you need to, it helps, I guess, to track your accomplishments, maybe have a weekly journal, look at what you've accomplished during the week, review at the end of the month, the end of the quarter, but have a tracking of your accomplishments just to see how far you've come. And it can help in your career to make sure you have like regular check-ins with your manager and or your mentor to go through these accomplishments and maybe how they might contribute to the growth of your, your career, your professional trajectory. So that's one thing that we can, that you can nice. help. That's, that's a great tip. And we actually, we have a five minute Friday episode dedicated to imposter syndrome, what it is and how you might be able to counteract um, bits of imposter syndrome if you experience that yourself. So that's episode number 502 of this podcast. All right, thank you for that practical advice, Christina, for our listeners on how they are remarkable and how, uh, yeah, very practical advice on ways that uh, they could be overcoming things like imposter syndrome. 
So speaking of situations that could uh, cause a lot of imposter syndrome to flare up, you are an adjunct professor at IE Business School. Um, so how did you go from being a student to a professor? And that was also in Spain. Correct. Yeah. This is also in Spain. This is another long story, but I'm going to try to <laughs> shorten it. This goes into my unconventional journey yeah. in, in the field. Um, I was a student at IE Business School. Mm -hmm. So I studied, I mentioned it briefly earlier, I studied my master in business analytics and big data back in 2015, 2016 at IE. And um, as how did I transition from this student into the academic side as a professor? While I was a student, it started while I was a student, like the efforts, again, these habits that I was driving um, eventually led into me landing a professor position. So while I was a student, I was very involved with the school. Um, I was involved in like officer positions of the clubs. I was a student ambassador representing our class, uh, lots of different projects. I, I attended different conferences, networking. And a lot of the, especially the involvement in the clubs, being an officer, I got the chance to host events, to get closer to the, the IE business school staff and professors. So I started to open a lot of relationships here. Then when I graduated and I went on to work, at first I was working actually in SAS Institute and then Nielsen as a data engineer. During that time, I got approached by new students at the school asking me to come back as an alumni speaker. Mm -hmm. So now I started coming back to the school, staying very involved, but now on the speaker side and helping other students. During all of this, I maintained a really close relationship with IE, with the staff and with the professors. So fast forward from this a year and a half or so later, they had an opening in the one of the MBA programs. They needed a professor to give a course like an intro to business analytics and big data. And one of the professors that was reviewing this at the time, I came to his mind because he had seen me in a lot of events. He knew I had studied there. He knew I was capable. So he approached me and he asked me if I would like to give it a try as a teacher, as a professor, right? Um, because he believed in me. So I said, well, why not? You're um, an outstanding communicator. Uh, this, whole, this whole time listening to you speak, you never um and awe, and you very clearly get from point to point. So it doesn't surprise me never that somebody um was like- Never um and awe. I thought it, I do a lot of ums, but- I don't know, I haven't, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll point it out okay. next time. Okay, That'll, <laughs> I tried to avoid that. No, you really did. That's good. Uh, and great so uh, I'm not surprised that that professor had an intuition that you could be a great professor. Well, he, he believed in me, I, and I still greatly appreciate him for this. So he invited me to give it a try, and we did like a trial, and I came and taught. And um, the course got really high reviews. They invited me to come back again. It got even better reviews, very high. And wow. they started inviting me to teach more. And eventually I got appointed to be an adjunct professor there because of the, the, um, the reviews and the student feedback and even having others, professors sit in and watch. Mm -hmm. They were really happy with what wow. the content that was being delivered. Yeah. So. I landed this position, but I will warn that this is not normal. I know that most people have to apply as any job. You would apply for a position um, as an adjunct professor, or then you have like the tenured professors who permanently work there too. Mm -hmm. But you would usually go through a more traditional path. 
As you've seen from our conversation, a lot of what I did is not traditional. I like to just take another another route to get there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it, it worked. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, so that definitely answers the question of how you be, you became a professor from being a student. Uh, and it's interesting, just as kind of like a general tip for how people could be transitioning into any kind of role, there's lots of lessons that I could kind of pick up from that. So you know, I'm sure things like, you know, putting your best foot forward as a student and then later, you know, agreeing to do alumni lectures. And probably when you were doing that, there was no obvious benefit to you. You were just going to help out. And I'm sure when you did those talks, you probably prepared really well. Uh, for the listener's benefit, Christina is was is easily in at least in conservatively the 95th percentile of being prepared for being on this podcast. So... A lot of guests, the majority of guests probably kind of just show up and it's like, well, we're going to be talking about my experience. And But Christina was extremely well prepared, um, had great thoughts on what the questions could be on the show and even the order that they could be in. And that is that's truly unusual. So I wouldn't be surprised if that same kind of preparedness has been um, has been happening throughout your career. And so by showing up into these situations, whether it's an alumni talk or then later doing a guest lecture, be so well prepared, and uh, and it shows. And then on top of your communication skills. So I think there's some general tips there. I don't know if you have other guidance or uh, other things that you've learned from teaching that w- would be helpful for the audience to know. From teaching, for sure. And, and actually rewinding a little bit about yeah. kind of what you were talking about too, that I was going and doing these, I was involved in the student organizations and then the alumni talks during this time, there was no obvious like benefit for me. What was important about this time of my life, and I think it's important for others to keep it in mind when they are starting out in data science or whatever they are, they are pursuing, is that you have to be careful saying no, especially at the beginning when, you ju- when you're just getting started. That was what Maybe I have a problem of saying no. Like you need to say no eventually, but yeah. especially you, you have a problem with not saying. No. I have a problem with yes. I have a problem <laughs> with not saying no. Yeah, I hear that. But at the beginning, it was it was so vital to my career because each thing that I said yes to and I got involved in, it ended up opening another door. Mm-hmm. So none of these things at the beginning, I didn't know. I didn't expect later to become a professor. That actually was not in my path. I'm glad it happened. But I was doing these things just for the opportunity to help others. And I, and I didn't know how to say no. <laughs> but um, at the beginning, I think it's important to take all of these opportunities as they come. Later, as you develop your career, you need to get better at prioritizing and saying no. But don't, do, don't say the no word at the start. So right. that's one little lesson. And then you had asked as well about things that I've learned from teaching. I think that being a teacher has benefited my my corporate career so much. Because when you are a teacher, of course you're working on your communication skills and public speaking, that's core to the role. Mm -hmm. But then as well, when you're teaching a subject, you realize how much you have to really understand it. You have to understand so deeply what you are going to teach to the students. So whenever I'm preparing a class or preparing content, I'm also questioning myself and thinking, okay, how can I explain this best to the students? I need to really understand it if I'm going to explain it. And then on top of that, I try to foresee the questions they might ask me 
So then I prepare in advance. What is the answer? Mm. Yeah, I can tell. It's like an endless, <laughs> and it's like this endless loop yeah. for preparation. Yeah. But it really has helped me um, on the corporate side, just understanding more about data science, analytics, and so on. Nice. I guess thinking more generally. With all of the different cultures and experiences that you've had, traveling, speaking, teaching, working in different countries, um, and it goes beyond just what we've explicitly talked about on the show so far, you are a frequent speaker at international conferences. Prior to the pandemic, you would have been physically going to these countries all over the world. Now you're probably, maybe again now, traveling there and probably frequently uh, calling in virtually into these international conferences. So what lessons have you learned from that experience, doing all of this uh, teaching and working, traveling, speaking in so many different cultures? So many lessons. <laughs> and I love, I love being involved with other cultures and learning about other cultures, meeting other people, and then having the opportunity to both travel for leisure, but for work as well. Mm -hmm. At least pre-pandemic, I traveled um, quite often with IE Business School because not only am I a professor, but I do like a side job for them, which is helping their business development teams. So I'll go with their business development teams in different regions around the world and help them with giving uh, master classes for potential students, speaking at corporate partners that may, they may have in different countries. Mm -hmm. And by doing this, I'm obviously going and working in a lot of different countries. I've had the chance to travel a lot through Central Asia, through Middle East, and this is very different from a European way of working or an American way of working that I was more familiar with. So I've learned a lot of lessons along the way, especially just being more aware of other cultures. When you go to another country and you're working there and you're mingling with people, um, you have to be aware of the differences. The more aware you can be, the more successful you're going to be. So I take this into account before I travel to a new country and I'm going to be speaking with people there or giving a talk, I try to consider what cultural things do I need to have at the top of my mind. So to give you an example of a good lesson I learned, I realized I was not as aware as I, I should have been. Mm -hmm. So I was giving a talk for Saudi Arabia. And after finishing the talk, I was told that one of the images I used was inappropriate, that I need to remove it for future talks. Mm. The image was um, just, it was like a couple sitting at a table and there was wine sitting on the table. Mm -hmm. And I just hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in right, advance. Yeah. I had used this picture before in other talks, yeah. but you need to be super aware when you're speaking in another, in another culture. You could have, you could have like a sensor over it. It's like, it's like blurred out. <laughs> you're like, what is on the table in front of them? Well, we'll never know. No idea. <laughs> no, so this like, this made me realize like, oops, I, I wasn't as aware as I should have been. And there's constantly these little things that you have to keep in mind. So that's it. awareness. Yeah, it's just so important. A great yeah. story there. Um, all right, so that was a general question. Let's get even more general uh, in terms of broad data science context, but more specific uh, to something that might be of interest to our listeners. What skills do you think are most important for people working in data, particularly data science today? Yeah, I would start with the, we can start with the hard skills, but the only hard skill that I would absolutely recommend that everyone needs to learn 
and probably some listeners will not be surprised by my answer. It's, it's SQL or SQL. I think everyone needs to know SQL or SQL. Um, doesn't matter if you're a data engineer, an ML engineer, a data scientist, a data analyst, you're going to touch on it, learn it. It's easy, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Um, the rest from there is the tech stack that you need to be familiar with depending on, on your position. I think more important is the soft skills side. And I think no matter what your position is, you should start working early on your communication skills because these can take you far. This is going to open doors for you. Communication skills are important really right at the beginning of your career for you to land a job, you need to convince someone in an interview to hire you. Mm -hmm. The better your communication skills are, the easier it is for you to land these jobs. Mm-hmm. So just getting in the door to begin with. From there, having solid communication skills can help you grow within a company, can help you transition. Um, it's just, I don't know, I think it's the most important skill. And especially in tech, you have a lot of, of course, introverted people um, that maybe don't want to put their, put their face out there. They don't want to be speaking up, which means you can stand out even more. But I think that, um, and, and also might be a surprise to you, but I'm pretty introverted too. I prefer to be in the weekends with, the, with my books and not with people. <laughs> uh, based on everything that's happened in the episode so far, that probably would be surprising to a listener, but it won't be based on what's going to happen right after <laughs> this topic. Okay. So, um, yeah, so pushing, this is again like pushing yourself out of your, your comfort zone, um, communicating. And then the point I wanted to get at is that with tech, a lot of times, One really important skill with communication is learning how to communicate very complex um, topics in simple, easy to understand terms. Because one of the most valuable positions is selling the data, the project that you put together to business stakeholders. So if you can be the person to do that, you have a lot more opportunity in front of you instead of just being in, in the back office. Right. Yep, that makes a huge amount of sense. Um, very practical advice. So um, your big skills that people in data should know are SQL and then whatever role-specific tech stack that they need to know on the hard side. And then on the soft side, emphasizing communication, which is, I think, the answer that comes up most uh, when I ask questions like, what are you looking for in people that you hire? Guests will often say communication. And this makes perfect sense. You've explained it really well. I think it's great to reinforce that with the audience particularly this idea that selling, um, being able to sell complex topics to a non-technical audience, that will really accelerate your career, no question. Whether you are you know, in a small startup selling externally, or you're in a bigger company where you're, you're, whether you are aware of it or not, you are selling internally all the time. What is the value of what you're doing or what you could be doing or what your team could be doing? Um, you're always selling. <laughs> That's a good. That's a good point. So communication and sales sounds like yeah important. Um, all right. So you were talking in your last answer about being introverted, uh, which yes, <laughs> based on what an amazing communicator you are, and especially uh, being in person with you, like you're this incredibly engaging speaker. And so I would never have guessed, except that <laughs> it does seem like there is some introversion under there because you run a group that goes under the hashtag book a week challenge. So tell us about the book a week challenge. Some of it sounds 
somewhat self-explanatory. <laughs> um, we burn a book every week. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, tell us uh, if you've got some particularly big recommendations for the audience. Yeah, of course. This is my favorite thing to talk about. So this is my baby. This is my passion. The hashtag book a week challenge. It actually started as a personal a personal challenge to myself that I wanted to pick up reading again. I did reading a lot as a child. I was crazy about books. I would not put my books down. And then I kind of left that, that habit aside in high school, college. You have more important things to do, I guess, at that point in your life. You've got to read the books that they tell you to read. <laughs> oh, that's true. You have to read your, your uni books. So I picked back up this challenge, started as a personal thing, and then I started to do it more publicly under the hashtag book a week challenge that I host over LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to do it publicly partly because there, there's an element that if you do something publicly, it, it kind of forces you to stick to it. You have 100%. more of a, yeah, you have more pressure. If there's something that you are, like something that you know you would like to be doing regularly, that you haven't been able to intrinsically summon up the focus to do regularly. I 100% agree. This idea of sharing your work publicly, whether it's it could be a LinkedIn post or it could be a blog post, it could be running an in-person group, that idea has dramatically transformed my career uh, personally. The show isn't about me, but really quickly, um, around 2016, I had been, for a couple of years, I'd been really aware of deep learning and I wanted to be studying deep learning deeply. But weekends would go, you know, you're busy with work and weekends would go by and I'd be like, oh yeah, that chapter that I was gonna read about deep learning, I just didn't do it again. And so eventually I just forced myself by creating a group, a deep learning study group that was going to meet on a date and we were gonna cover a specific chapter. And so all of a sudden I had to do it, whether no matter what else was going on in my life, I had to make the time for that. And, uh, and that, indirectly has led to everything that I'm doing since, like hosting a podcast, writing a book on deep learning. Um, all of those things happened as a result of forcing myself to do it. So I couldn't agree more that having a hashtag like this book a week challenge is a great way to force yourself to read a book a week. It, it works. It yeah. works. So I, I started it selfishly for that reason, to make sure I, I stayed on board. But then as well, because I wanted to create a community effect, a community effort, and bring more people onto the challenge. And try to enforce more healthy habits yeah. and continuous learning. So yeah. I'm all into education, continuous learning. Another reason why doing it publicly can be so helpful. So not only do you read a book a week, but lots of people in the group, if not reading a book a week, they're probably reading a lot more than they otherwise would be by having this community around that are doing it. Which reminds me that I also created the hashtag book a month challenge for ah, those that cannot. Nice stay because a week i understand a book a week is a lot so we also have the hashtag book a month challenge which i think practically anyone can finish one book a month so that's a little bit more broader is it is it like the best of like your top pick from the previous month or something no i actually post every book under the book a month challenge even though <laughs> <laughs> i just use every book is book a week and book a month for me uh, but you're right i could i could maybe just yeah, I could do that, but I don't. It's hard for me to pick my favorite, and, and every book is valid. And yet we're going to make you right now. Oh, yeah, okay. What are your, yeah, so actually that'd be a fun one for you, given all the reading that you've done. Yeah. It's your all-time favorite book. 
I don't know if I could pick like the book, the mm -hmm. all-time favorite, but mm -hmm. for those that know me from this challenge or know about my reading habits, you would know that my favorite genre is sci-fi. I love science fiction. I have to, one, one thing about the challenge that I recommend others as well is that you actually should change the type of books that you're reading. Don't always stick to the same thing. So I'm constantly changing sci-fi, tech, neuro, neuroscience, physics, historical fiction. Like I jump all over the place. But I have to force myself to do this because if it were up to me, I would just read sci-fi every week. <laughs> <laughs> so my top sci-fi, um, there are three books that are my absolute favorite. You have Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. Mm. There is um, Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. And then Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. All of these are like typical sci-fi tech, nice. uh, outer space, artificial intelligence. Neil Stevenson is a really famous author in the space, yes. isn't he? There's a Cryptonomicon as a big I one. I haven't that. read that one, yeah. but I know it. I know of it. Yeah, I haven't read any of it, but that's a book that has been recommended to me a bunch of times in my life. Well, you can add Seven Eves as well next to that because it's very, very good. Um, nice. So that's, the, that's more the sci-fi, but to get it more on track with our conversation and our listeners tuning in for data mm -hmm. and tech. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that these sci-fi helps my creativity, especially when it comes to thinking about the future of artificial intelligence and technology. It can help in that sense, and it definitely does for me. But then if you want something a little bit more grounded, more data or tech focused, I have a lot of, a lot of suggestions, <laughs> but to narrow it down, um, it may have been suggested before, but Weapons of Math Destruction uh, by Kathy O'Neill is great for data ethics to be more aware of the challenges that all of these algorithms and the data around us, the challenges that it poses for us as a society. Right. We're at this moment in time that we really need to be aware of it and we need to make changes so that some of the, the negatives of algorithms don't come back and hurt us. Um, so there's that book. As well, um, another one, uh, maybe not as, as well-known, um, but one that I found really interesting because I wasn't aware of this at all. It's called Army of None. It's mm. about autonomous weapons, so artificial intelligence within warfare. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the author is Paul Scharr. And this was just the first book that I really got a touch of... Um, of data as it uh, as it pertains to warfare it's just mm -hmm. not something that i think about but mm -hmm. it's going to become more and more important when it comes to governments and, and military yeah. so that was an apparently super conflict in inter international conflict happening all, yes, all of a sudden again that's we, true we might have never thought in our lifetimes that would happen yeah 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 and and it probably links a lot to the data ethics as well there's data ethics pieces that we need to keep in mind um, so there's that book. And then another one that I really like, especially for our beginners, mm -hmm. it's called Be Data Literate mm -hmm. by Jordan Morrow. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great book to get started for those wanting to understand the data literacy skills that you need to succeed in business. Yeah, super well-known speaker, Jordan Morrow. Yeah. In our space. Yeah, 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 he is. Very cool. Well, those are awesome recommendations, and I expected nothing less given your book a week challenge and your book a month challenge, it turns out. All right, so we had a question from Dr. Joseph Ahern uh, that was actually about what top books you recommend. And so that we've already done. I hope you enjoyed the answers there, Dr. Ahern. Um, and then we also had a question from Ankita, 
So Ankita asked um, what it's, how it is different working at a very large analytics team like Google might have uh, relative to a smaller analytics team. This is a great question. And I would say that, interestingly enough, when I made that move from Google to Waze, it was like I was moving to a small company. Within right. Google, yes, but I was still moving to this smaller company with a smaller analytics team. So I got a taste of, I've had this taste of being on a small analytics team in a smaller company. But in general, what I would say the difference is, is when you're working in a small medium business maybe, and you're a small analytics team, many times you have to be more scrappy, I would say, that you've got to do a lot more with your time. You don't get to be maybe as specialized as an analytics team in a huge company that might have analysts dedicated, analysts and data scientists dedicated to very specific things on each team. Whereas in a smaller company, you have this analytics team that has to do a whole lot of everything. So you've got to be more scrappy. You've got to be more um, flexible to adapt. Of course, you're learning tons of new things. I think you even probably get challenged to learn more than you do at a big company where you've already got a specific focus that you have to master. So you become a little bit more of a generalist. And then depending on how you how you use your time, you might be able to focus on a few things. But that would be the big thing that I see is, is being a specialist at a bigger company to having to be more of a generalist, being scrappy, and doing a whole lot more with the data that you have. Great answer. Crystal clear. Um, so I hope that is helpful, Ankita, and other listeners out there. So Christina, clearly you have a lot of brilliant thoughts. We know that we can be following you on LinkedIn, particularly the Book a Week Challenge. Um, are there other social media platforms that we should be following you on? I'm not really active anywhere else. So my main thing is, yeah, it makes it easy. I'm trying to make my life easy. Just LinkedIn. And then you can, of course, follow the hashtag book a week challenge and or the hashtag book a month challenge where you'll get you'll be able to see all the books that I recommend, but also all of the books that everyone else that is a part of the challenge also recommends. Awesome. Thank you so much, Christina, for being on the show. Thank you for coming to my apartment in New York to film this episode in person. It's been so much fun. And I hope we'll be catching up with you on air sometime again soon. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope it was helpful for our listeners. No doubt. Thanks. I had a delightful day hanging out with Christina and filming her episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing her data career and broader life insights as much as I did. In the episode, Christina filled us in on how unconventional paths into a data career can be overcome by getting past the inevitable negativity of the struggle, adjusting your daily habits to meet your long-term goals, and learning to thrive outside your comfort zone. She talked about how the S2 geometry and H3 open source systems by Google and Uber respectively enable accurate geospatial data queries on the 3D surface of our planet how women and other underrepresented groups in tech can advance their careers by selling themselves and smashing modesty norms, how SQL is in her view the most valuable hard skill in a data career while communication, especially selling complex topics to non-technical stakeholders, is the most valuable soft skill. And we had her top three data book recommendations, namely Weapons of Math Destruction, Army of None, and Be Data Literate. If you like book recommendations like the many made by Christina in today's episode, check out the organized, tallied spreadsheet of all the book recommendations we've had in the 600 plus episodes of this podcast by making your way to superdatascience.com books. 
As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Christina's LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 603. That's superdatascience.com slash 603. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another excellent episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>